deconstruction of the administrative state. They're corporatist, globalist media that are adamantly opposed to an economic nationalist agenda like Donald Trump has. If you think they're gonna give you your country back without a fight, you are sadly mistaken. Every day, every day it is gonna be a fight. Welcome to Primary Concerns. I'm your host, Brian Boitler, senior editor at The New Republic. It's hard to boil down all the ways the Trump campaign and presidency have reshaped American political norms. But our guest today has done just that. Business Week's Joshua Green has written a new best-selling book called Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. He joined me in studio to discuss their impact on politics and whether there's any going back. Josh Green, welcome to Primary Concerns. It's great to be here. So what's your story? Where do you come from? Where do I come from? I just, you know, originally in... Small planet at the outer (laughs) distance. I'm from New London, Connecticut. Uh, My parents are teachers. My dad's a theologian. Mom was a uh, high school English and Latin teacher. So that that was how I got into writing and fussy grammar and all that stuff. I get wrapped in the knuckles when I I left a hanging gerund and that sort of thing. So the writing life was preordained and here I am. All right. Um, and then you wrote a book at some point. I wrote, I actually co-wrote a book with Henry Waxman like seven or eight years ago. That was the first kind of you know, real book I did, but it doesn't count because it, <laughs> it was his and not mine. So this one, Devil's Bargain, is the, yeah, like my first solo effort. Uh, I read it. I read it. Um, I thought I liked it, but then I read the acknowledgments and you didn't even mention me once. So then I decided... You, you've never had me on the podcast. Why the hell would I give you any... <laughs> well, so I decided I would take this opportunity anything, yeah. to pan your book. And, All right. No, no, no. Uh, seriously, um, aside from the kind of PTSD that I think a certain kind of reader will get from your yeah, vivid recreation yeah, of too. election night and uh, and parts of the campaign, it's really... it's I, I can't recommend the book enough. And I haven't actually read a campaign book in several years um, because I think most of them suck. But stylistically, what what I liked about this is that it avoids a lot of the tropes that make that genre often pretty bad. Like, there's a lot of overwriting and there's a lot of shallowness. It's all about horse race stuff. And you manage not to make it all about that, but you don't sacrifice, like, the juicy anecdotes that make these kinds of books, like, guilty pleasures in addition to, in this this case, something a little bit more elevated. Well, that was, I mean, the goal was to kind of smuggle in a serious... Um, intellectual biography mm-hmm. and, and political biography of Bannon and even Trump a little bit in the guise of a campaign book since that's what people want to read and what sells. But but the parts of the book that interested me the most um, are probably the ones that have gotten like the least amount of attention. You know, Chris Christie and his like, disgusting germy cell phone was one of those <laughs> things that got picked up and how Trump blew up at him and how Manafort got fired. And it has, you know, the game-changing moments that, that Cable demands. But the thing I, I really wanted to do that prompted me to write the book was I'd, I'd had up close access to Bannon, you know, for years and years and years mm-hmm. since 2011 when I met him, and you know I spoke to him on election morning because I had to write like the instant turnaround. Mm-hmm. Hillary, you know, I'd pre-written my Hillary wins the presidential race story for Business Week. It was gonna be the cover story, and like you know, 10 p.m. Lo and behold, yeah, it dawns we, on me and everybody else that yeah. Um, but Bannon had, had agreed. You, ha, ha, had you pre-written a? a uh, uh, Trump wins just in case. No, of course not. So you had to start from scratch. I literally, so so we sat down because Business Week, where I write, um, they close on a Wednesday. Okay. So I had like, you know, 18 hours, whatever, to bang it out. So I had to sit there with my kind of finger in the wind and prognosticate, like, what's the outcome going to be? And so I pre wrote Hillary wins and Democrats win the Senate. Here's how Schumer and Clinton will team up to, ch- to change the country. You guys have it so easy, man. I, I, I had like yeah. I had like four pre writes. 
mostly ready to go <clears throat> just for all the various... Did you have a Trump pre-write? Are you that I prescient didn't, I or didn't anal? Ha- no, I mean, so I, I, I was all prepared for Trump to win the primary, and I was, like, fairly prepared for him to lose, although in that last month and after the Comey letter, I kind of, you know... Uh, <clears throat> let go of just assuming that the polls were correct or whatever and started worrying that maybe that wasn't going to be the outcome. I didn't have a full Trump wins story written out, but I had a sketch and it didn't take me more than 30, 45 minutes to like fill it out with the piece that we ran that night. Anyway. But so, so, so the kind of the genesis of the book and what, what's hiding beneath the carapace of a campaign book is so Bannon, as I said, I've known for a long time. I got him to agree a couple days before the election I said, look, you know, win or lose, this really is the most kind of incredible insurgency, uh, presidential insurgency in my lifetime, maybe ever. I mean, yeah. just the fact that he, that Trump got as far as he did to win the nomination and keep it close. Will you commit to calling me on election morning, win or lose, because, you know, I'm the guy that's going to write the piece for Business Week and I've known you going back, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he said, yeah, sure. And to his credit, at like 7.15 the morning after the election, phone rings. It's Steve Bannon. And the, the conversation we had is, is in toward the end of the book. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that Trump won the election. Um, <laughs> but Bannon, Bannon had uh, like a particular, like he was, he gets in these manic highs. It's almost like a bipolar thing. And obviously, you know, he had a lot to be excited about. But he made a point then that sort of planted a seed was like, he calls me, he goes, you know, do you understand what happened? Do you understand what happened? I'm like, well, I understand Trump won. <laughs> won. I, don't, I don't understand. I miss it. And he said, you guys, like Democrats and the left, and he, he includes the media and the left, like you fell prey to the same forces that hurt Republicans in the 90s. You believe, you know, you got trapped in your own echo chamber. You believed your own hype and your own spin that Clinton was preordained and Trump was never serious. And I thought he was kind of right. And, and I thought about it over the next couple of days. And the question, you know, I keep getting is, well, you know, you were there, you're a political reporter, how did it happen? And so the idea, to me, I, I'd always thought that the Trump-Bannon relationship was just the most kind of interesting facet mm-hmm. of the campaign, because I ignored the Democrats and didn't write about them this cycle. And so, for, you know, from that morning, looking back, I mean, it did seem like there is uh, a through line that helps to explain how this happened. And so what I, what I tried to do is not just tell the story of the campaign and the leaked polls and this and that, but like, where Bannon's weird ideology came from, you know, how it was that Trump moves from entertainer to politician, and, and how it was that he just had this kind of gut-level intuition that racism and anti-immigrant sentiment and, you know, Bannon's apocalyptic worldview right. were the best way to win the hearts and minds of Republican voters. Yeah, I mean, as, as luck would have it, my colleague uh, for the New Republic, Alex Shepard, reviewed Devil's Bargain for us uh, a very good review, I thought. Um, and he homed in on this exact through line of the story, which kind of connects Steve Bannon to the what Hillary Clinton called the vast right-wing conspiracy of the 1990s. And I feel like it demonstrates pretty convincingly that Bannon used Trump as kind of like a stage for bringing that band back together, but that he was just like, we're going to mix up the set. We're not going to just like repeat <laughs> the same old songs that, that we, we used in the 90s. And I'm glad Alex pulled on that thread because I feel like the book reveals, I think, a very strong consciousness on Bannon's part of what conservative politics in America really is. And he doesn't try to kind of layer that under mountains of bullshit about, um, you know, the way a normal Republican operative would talk about. He doesn't hide the ball. Right, right, right. Uh, Like uh, early in the book, you describe him as less a master of a political strategist than a populist ideologue. Uh, But like if you followed Bannon's work, 
he doesn't even bother trying to win the battle for his ideas in the way the rest of us kind of like children of the Enlightenment would think is like the right way to do it, right? Is that fair? Yeah, no, the guys he worships the most are the fascist Soviet and Nazi propaganda filmmakers of the 30s and 40s. And that's mm-hmm. not that's not a, a, a no. libelous in any way. I mean, he takes ownership of this and says, you know, Sergei Eisenstein, who did, you know, Battleship uh, Potemkin and Lenny Riefenstahl, Will to Power, are the people you know that I admire because they have the power to use media to move the masses. They understand messaging. Um, if you watch any of Bannon's movies, which I don't really recommend, I, I think they're t- they're terrible. But they're they're they're, they're clear homages to Riefenstahl right. and some of those other people. And so he he doesn't believe in kind of the Paul Ryan school of you know I'm going to go wash dishes at a homeless shelter and pretend I'm on the side of the poor while really cutting taxes for the rich. You know, Bannon, for better or worse, is pretty upfront about what he wants to do and who he's kind of standing up for. I don't think he's been very effective at getting those policies implemented in the White House, but he, he has a much more direct approach, and I think it has a lot of resonance obviously right with with republican grassroots voters and even some democrats well I, yeah I, I guess you know i i feel like a lot of the the tactics conservatives have used over the years um work in some sense but they work through some kind of like uh like subterfuge yeah exactly yeah. Ra- rather than so for instance like to bring this back to the point about the anti-clinton cabal um bannon's critique of their old work is basically that they just use latent Clinton hatred as red meat mobilization stuff, right, for paranoid conservatives. But because in the 90s they were so partisan about that, they had a hard time getting anyone in mainstream media or left of center to to really pay any... Well, well, but even worse, they didn't recognize that that was happening. They drank the Kool-Aid. They believed that they were winning when in fact they weren't. And Bannon who is prone to falling in in his own spells, I thought that was a very shrewd analysis of what Republicans did wrong. Right. I agree. In, in the 1990s. And it's interesting that he, being the whacked out, fringy guy that he is, could recognize that and, and, and adjust. And that's one of the you know stories I tell him in Chapter 7, how he does adjust. Um, but yeah, I, th- I thought that was a smart analysis. And, and, and looking back, and you and I have had this discussion off the air I think he's just as shrewd at analyzing what went wrong for Democrats this cycle, what went wrong for liberals, and the danger in um, kind of submitting to the comfortable and satisfying judgments against Trump and Bannon as being, you know, merely racist or white nationalist, et cetera, et cetera, and not grappling with the underlying issues. Why was it that they were able to win over you know, majority electoral college, um, the, the presidency, obviously, but but Republicans won up and down the ticket um, by substantial margins with Donald Trump atop the ticket. I, I think, I know Bannon thinks this and I agree with him, that th- th- there is something missing from the Democratic message that, that Bannon, I think, intuitively understands and at least in an electoral context, was able to reach those people and activate them and get them to vote for Trump. And I, I think Democrats are going to have a hard time moving forward. Maybe not in the next election because Trump is just so mm-hmm. furiously pancaking and, and, and beclowning himself. But <laughs> they need they, the party needs to have the same kind of self-awareness about its shortcomings that Bannon uh, did about conservatives in the 1990s. I think you're seeing that happening. And I think Democrats uh, like need to be able to keep two things in their mind at once, which is like – 
He lost the popular vote. They gained <clears throat> seats in the House and the Senate. I mean, it was not like what it's not the landslide Trump likes to to describe it as, but it also like no, he shouldn't have been anywhere close. This should have been like a Goldwater esque wipeout. Exactly. Um, and it it wasn't that. And even if Hillary Clinton had managed to turn you know eighty thousand votes or whatever it was in the northern Midwest and win the election, it still would have been too close for anyone in the Democratic Party to be able to justify, right? Um, Absolutely. And, and But, well, go on, go on. Well, but I mean, I think I think you even now are minimizing the um, the, the scope of that loss because we, I mean, we forget or, or, or people tend to forget how the playing field, especially in the Senate, was tilted toward the Democrats in the last election. Yes, they gained seats. They should have gained a lot more yeah. seats. And you wind up with the biggest House margin for Republicans since, what, the 1920s. Mm-hmm. You look at state houses across the country. You have these huge Republican margins. And, and you look at a fundamental structural problem with the Democratic coalition and that they just don't draw people in rural areas, uh, working class white people, which get, tends to get talked about most in a presidential context, but really matters in in a congressional context, in a Senate context, because it's going to be hard for Democrats to uh, win back the House, win back the Senate, and hold on to it with any consistency, I think, if they can't get back some of the voters that they lost to Trump. And I mean, the, 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 the strangest species of voter in my mind, that I have the hardest time kind of grokking with are the people who voted for Obama in 2012 and then went over uh, to Trump in 2016. I mean, those, those people ought to be gettable um, from Democrats. And maybe maybe they're they're working on fixing things, as you say. I have not been privy to these meetings because I don't see a lot of it. Um, but but I've also been often kind of Trump. They're offering land, a better deal, haven't you heard? <laughs> doing a better right. But I mean, even that, even that. I, I mean, come on, yeah, come on. It's that, uh, that sounds like it was it was it was. Uh, you know, workshop by a SWAT team of McKinsey consultants. <laughs> God knows how many millions of dollars. They're definitely not thinking about how doing Trump, that. You, you you say we offer a better <laughs> deal. Trump says, uh, you know, why do you need a better deal? You get the best deal for me. And then Wolf Blitzer says, uh, Democrats lost the message in war today. It's <laughs> but it, it just sounds so hollow and tinny and and, synth, and synthetic and 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 like even the idea that the, like the slogan is the important part. It just I, I just want to bang my head against it. I don't pretend to know like what the what the magic formula is for Democrats to win back voters they lost, and I'm not even sure I can can claim to have a, a thoroughgoing understanding of how Trump lured away. Obama voters from 2012. I mean, I have, I have, you know, a sense of what tactics were deployed, but not which ones necessarily were the most effective. Obviously, there was a policy element to it, right? The anti-immigrant stuff, but also the sort of yeah. like white welfare chauvinism stuff. I'm not going to touch your Medicare and Social Security or or anything mm-hmm. like that. But what what Bannon did as far as reaching people who might be willing to switch from d- uh, Democratic ticket voting to Republican ticket voting is he hacks the problem that the anti-Clinton people had in the 90s of just talking to themselves all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to spoil too much, but he sets up like an upright-seeming organization ra- rather than try to launder something from a right-wing outlet to a tabloid to drudge and hoping hoping that at some point the media grabs onto it. He just sets up uh, a, you know, an upright... Yeah, I'll tell us. I'll, yeah. I'll tell us. I mean, basically, what? so so I'd known Bannon since 2011, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of talk about how I met him in the, in the preface of the book, um, and he's such a wild and manic and interesting character that, that I, as a, as a magazine feature writer, sort of decided, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write about this guy at some point. Mm-hmm. I just need to find the news peg. And I found the news peg in 2015 because Bannon came up with what I thought was a really 
interesting and intriguing way to hack the mainstream media. This mm-hmm. is, I think, this is what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and he and he understood. Okay, so his critique in the '90s was that conservatives got trapped in a bubble. They didn't reach mainstream mm-hmm. voters. Uh, their their message didn't penetrate the mainstream media. So how do you fix that? And Bannon's innovation was, well, look, it's facts and wild rumors and Vince Foster murder theories are not going to convince anybody who isn't already convinced. So what we need to do is drill down on facts, on documentable facts that are damning to Hillary Clinton. So Bannon believes in this thing, he calls it periodicity, where you don't try and tell a whole story. It's too much to swallow. You focus in on one narrow thing. Josh Marshall, I think both of our old former boss would, would claim ownership of this concept. But would I, he really? I think he, uh, he he at least was early to this idea that, that news actually works in iterative fashion and, yeah. that, and, that, and that stories evolve increment by increment rather than having splash here and splash there. Well, Bannon, I mean, Bannon's thing was really just like... I don't think we, they get we, along. We need to, no, no, no. <laughs> you know what? I, I think they, I tried to broker a, a breakfast between the two. Oh, really? During the, yeah, during the... It's pretty early in the campaign when think, Bannon took over and he was kind of high on his own... On his own. <laughs> You know, Supply. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and was feeling very powerful. But but so Bannon's idea basically to hack the mainstream media was, look, let's focus on one period of Hillary Clinton's life that we think will be damning. He picked the time after she left the Senate because it really hadn't gotten the coverage that the 90s stuff had. And he focused on the Clinton Foundation mm-hmm. and he focused on all the money coming in from foreign governments, from foreign donors of, uh, you know, questionable character and intent. And they did all sorts of kind of, you know, forensic accounting and deep web scraping. Reporting, Re- Real reporting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, real reporting at this uh, think tank called the Government Accountability Institute down in Tallahassee, Florida, that is legally a nonprofit research en- entity, but it's paid for, it's funded by the Mercer family, the right-wing billionaires mm-hmm. who pay for Breitbart News and the other stuff. And so they were able over two years to kind of come up with all this data, and it became the basis of the best-selling book, Clinton Cash, which came out on the eve of, uh, I think it came out in like May 2015, right before Clinton was announcing her candidacy. Mm-hmm. But what they did, this was Bannon's innovation, which was which was so interesting and why I wrote about him, is they didn't take this stuff and run it on Breitbart News. They purposely didn't run it in Breitbart News. And what they did is they went to the New York Times, uh, to Joe Becker and some other reporters, and said, hey, we have this reporting that we've ginned up that shows that the foundation was taking money from this, like, I can't remember what he was, like a Ukrainian... No, like a, a yeah, is this Juster, a, like a Kaz- yeah. Frank Juzic, yeah, like a Kazakhstani uranium miner or whatever, uh, who was somehow in league with with Putin and the Russians and had given millions and millions and millions of dollars to the Clinton Foundation and hadn't disclosed it as as the Clintons had pr- promised they would. And so, lo and behold, even before the book comes out, suddenly one day there's a front page story. Huge spread above the fold in the New York Times, laying out this damning relationship. And there's this odd little kind of phrase about, you know, 10 paragraphs into the piece saying, you know, some of this reporting is based on the forthcoming book, Clinton Cash. And that was an example of how Bannon kind of hacked his way into the New York Times. Uh, and, And when the book came out, uh, you know, Bannon's contention was, look, I know you guys are all lefties, you investigative reporters, but I also know that you really care about stories and facts. And if we hand you a pile of facts, you will do your due diligence, chase these stories and and take them like a baton and keep reporting mm-hmm. them. And that's exactly what happened with the Clinton cash book. Suddenly these stories are appearing everywhere and tarnishing Clinton's image right at the moment that she's announcing her, her, her presidential campaign. So well, here's what's fascinating to me about that. And, and it ties back to the way I feel like Bannon kind of represents a, a quantum leap in American conservatives kind of embracing 
anti-enlightenment, anti-democratic norms, values, whatever, is that in, in doing this, right, he's ditching the pretension that conservative media is necessary to balance out liberal media, right? His whole point is that non-conservatives can be influenced on this fact-based channel and that the conservative media's purpose is to keep the right much more propagandized, right? Exactly. And you know who had the best way of describing this was David Brock, who I interviewed back in 2015 and was really the only person I could find on the left who took seriously um, the threat that Bannon posed and the threat that this Clinton Cash book posed. Because as Brock put it to me, you know, getting these negative stories into the New York Times instead of, you know, some London tabloid or the New York Post or whatever that can be ignored by the mainstream, getting it into the New York Times is like a virus infecting a host body. If you get that in there, all of, of Clinton's potential voters are going to read it. All the other news media reporters are going to read it. And it's going to um, it's going to tarnish their impression of Hillary Clinton. And so what do you wind up with? You wind up with a, an unenthusiastic Democratic voting base as it pertains to Clinton because they see all these unseemly connections and the secret speeches and then the email thing comes out. I mean, we can talk later about whether that was exaggerated or not. But the point was um, they, 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 they tarnished Clinton's image in the eyes of these voters who then, um, through a, a stroke of dumb luck, had an alternative to choose from. Bernie Sanders, who was pure and crusading mm -hmm. and kind of put her... Uh, ethical and moral baggage into such sharp relief. And that is exactly what Bannon was trying to do. And it's something that Clinton never really recovered from. But I guess if, if you imagine the, the reporting that made the foundation for Clinton Cash, say, or the story that ran in the New York Times, um, if you if you imagine that transposed onto Breitbart.com, like the story would look right. different, it would be presented different, it would it would probably be much more embellished, right? Like and no, you, nobody nobody in the mainstream would care, right? Because right, well, you're you, conditioned to ignore, or it would just take a stroke of dumb luck for it to get picked up by the right, you know, like maybe a Fox News report, and then and then somebody at at a different outlet starts looking at it and says, okay, there's something here. It's not quite as like Ben Ben Shapiro. You quote him in in your book. Like, and I, you know, he, he's nobody's tribune for like liberal, <laughs> liberal norms, but he even says that Bannon for the purposes of Breitbart isn't interested. And I think he calls it like factual truth. Right. He, he's interested he's in about narrative, narrative truth, truth right? not factual right? truth. Right. And, yeah. and, and so Bannon's confession is we keep our guys like slavering with, with propaganda, red meat. We don't even really care if our facts are correct. And then we use fact-based persuasion techniques uh, through this cutout GAI to persuade liberals and you know non-conservative yeah. voters, and even had a slogan for it. It was called um, "Anchor Left, Pivot Right." Yeah. This, this was a slogan. What that means is you anchor these anti-Clinton stories on the quote-unquote left. He's referring to the mainstream mm -hmm. media, you know, the Times, the Post, Bloomberg News, what have you, and then pivot right. And so none of this stuff ever made it into Breitbart News directly. But what Breitbart would do instead was when the Times came out with a big story. Breitbart would write like five stories off the Times story saying, look, look, even the liberal New York Times right, says that Hillary is, you know, and sort of whip it up into this kind of rolling narrative of Clinton perfidy and, and evil. And that would keep the base riled up. 
And it would also lend, I think, credence and validity to a lot of the charges they were making because they weren't just making the charges based on their own reporting or their own, you know, conspiracy theories or contentions. They could point to the New York Times. Right. And so I like the sort of process he uses, the like the, the, the strategic process, which, you know, isn't much different than if you planted this idea of how to uh, attack Clinton in Karl Rove's head, I bet you he could execute the strategy just as well. But there's like much more clarity of of thought about like just what is it that the conservative media is? Is it really like the liberal media only with with the right wing tilt or is it like a is it a propaganda organ? Yeah, he's like Karl Rove, I don't think would ever think to admit that we have this edifice like Fox and Breitbart in order to basically feed a mix of misinformation and, and hype to to angry voters and that it's a mobilizing tool. Not only does Bannon have no illusions about mm-hmm. that, but he he thinks that it is useful and vital. I mean, he is, I mean, he'll, he'll say this, like this, this sounds like I'm insulting him, I'm saying it as if it's a pejorative. He is a propagandist. Yeah. Um, and he studies propagandist and he understands the power that these kind of messages have i think that's exactly what he's trying to do and it's, it's what he tried to do it's, it's what he did do uh when he took over the trump campaign well and it's not just him he surrounds himself with people who like consciously or not are really you know very like in their bones they're propagandists like his patron Robert Mercer, you point out, has a consultancy that advises foreign governments and militaries on influencing elections and public opinion using the tools of psychological warfare. Right, yeah. like this is not, you know, this is not nor like how the, the the Democratic Party or even most Republican candidates think about how to persuade or or mobilize voters is not with psychological warfare, but like you take the real world as it is and you spin it as needed to, right? And there's an actual difference between the two kinds of electioneering, right? There is, and I think he recognizes it. But again, I I still think the most important insight he had was the importance of facts as the basis of these attacks. Once those facts have been been published, the propaganda machine can flip on and you can, you can, you know, but the, spin them the way you want. But the, but but the but the but the facts serve as the basis less for you know sure they they end up being the seeds of, of propaganda but but the purpose of them is is to get a re, you know a real fact based message out to people who don't read Breitbart right right to disillusion potential Clinton voters liberals Democrats independents so, I mean I'm I'm curious if you think that there is a way for Democrats to do a kind of reverse <clears throat> hack of of conservative. Media like the reason you know. That's an interesting thought. I mean, like the the reason. um, I don't even want to use the term vulnerable, but the reason the New York Times, you know, liberals who read the Clinton cash story and were concerned about it, et cetera, were vulnerable to this hack is because you present them with some sort of fact based, uh, you know, research dossier and they'll and they'll run with it. Um, well, well, they'll they'll check it out and the, write their own. Sorry, by the way, yeah, yeah, I, I want to I want to make clear that the, the Times did everything absolutely right. Sure, sure. Like, if somebody brings you facts about an important presidential candidate, you're obligated to go out and, and, and report yeah. it. And they did, and they did it well. I don't I don't mean yeah, run okay. with it just like post it on the. the I'm New just York covering Times my website. ass. Yeah, here. yeah. No, run with yeah. it as in like check it out, do due diligence, yeah, and then yeah. but but treat it like it's a serious thing. I I have asked. I think I asked Brian Fallon. He was on the show. Like, is there a way to penetrate the filter bubble where conservatives get their information? And I, I feel like it's a much harder, uh, to mix metaphors, egg to, egg to crack, because if you tried to get this kind of damning information, you know, 
I've been writing about how Donald Trump is is proving his his disloyalty. The fact that you know his his claim to to being the super loyalist is belied by his treatment of Jeff Sessions. And if you tried to get Breitbart or something or Fox News to run a story about how hey maybe he's really not as loyal to his tribe as he. They would just never run it. Right. Like, it's an alternate. Re- I did a. It's, this isn't really in the book. It was sort of book promo. But I did a big time Sunday essay like I don't know a week ago that, that essentially made this exact mm-hmm. point that that what what I call in the book the conservative underworld. You know what was previously thought to be the you know, unrespectable. You know Breitbart News, fringe talk radio, blogs, stuff like Drudge Report has really swallowed up the more traditional respectable uh, right-leaning outlets like National Review, like Fox News. Uh, And now it is that underworld that kind of dominates the Republican mind collectively. It's voters, it's it's Fox News viewers. And, you know, if you watch Fox, I use use Lou Dobbs as, as an example. I mean, it's like tapping into an alternate reality. You know, Dobbs just graded Trump's first six months gave him an A plus, and you know how do you how do you find common cause? I mean, how do you how do you penetrate that bubble? I don't think you do. I, I I think I think Bannon's I think Bannon's mission would be much harder in reverse. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the problem was always uh, do, doing what Bannon did in in hacking uh, mainstream media and liberal media or whatever uh, was always going to be tougher just because that that kind of environment, Lou Dobbs for instance, like predates Bannon in some sense. Um, But I just think that what Bannon is doing in some sense is making more mainstream conservatives feel more comfortable with this notion of of propaganda being a valid way to conduct politics. But here's the thing I'm not clear on. How aware do you think those conservatives are that it's propaganda and that they're being propagandized? I I think they just accept this as... You're talking about the the viewers? Yeah. 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 I'm talking about more like... The like elected officials, yeah, practitioners of politics. You know, yeah, I, you know, I don't. I'm, I'm sure some of them have the self awareness to draw that distinction. But more and more, when I talk to Republican elected officials, um, on the record, but also just kind of privately and off the record, there isn't a lot of indication I get that they're in on the joke. I mean, I think a lot of those guys too have just swallowed this and accepted. I get okay. So so like. You're, you have your people who are definitely conscious of what this game is, right? Like, mm-hmm. Bannon is the avatar of those people. And, and, like, he supports Marine Le Pen's niece, Marianne, on the grounds that she's, quote, practically French medieval, right? Like, yeah. he's he's not hiding that, like, I want to take the way powerful people, like, manipulate the masses to, uh, you know, a, a millennium ago, basically, yeah. right? Yeah, 600 years. Actually. Right. Yeah. Okay, 600 years. Uh, uh Andrew Breitbart compares him favorably, like you suggested, to Lenny Riefenstahl. Um, and, like, there's this just conscious boastfulness in that set mm-hmm. of subverting liberal democratic ideals, just, you know, the nature of reason and, and so on. Um, and then separately from that, I feel like you had this whole conservative edifice that for, like, a few decades at least would make specious constitutional arguments for conservative ideas and try to get courts to adopt those mm-hmm. and use aggressive legislative tactics to like run anti-majoritarian policy through Congress and like use heavy rhetorical spin like you like go to yeah go to uh, kitchens and pretend to care about poverty when really you're just trying to cut taxes for the rich and obviously there's a difference in style and in conception of what's right between those two views of things but now that Trump is president he won like he is teaming up with 
Chris Kobach and Jeff Sessions to disenfranchise people. Conservatives are trying to pass a health care bill with just by outright lying about it in a, in a way that that must like make Bannon kind of smirk, right? Like this is what I, I like maybe that, maybe I mean it's funny Bannon has just never been interested in health care. Like we had this back when we were, but it's I'm, I'm it's yeah. not health care per se, right? Right? right. Just, just it's selling the idea it with, that with, just, you just forget about what's yeah, true. Yeah, I, I guess that's probably right. I, like I feel like that. So. <clears throat> the, the the word honey badger figures pretty heavily in the book. It's yeah. the Breitbart motto, or it's like the spirit animal of Breitbart. And I feel like ba- like that ethic that he instilled at Breitbart is now suffusing the rest of Republican politics. In yeah, a way that's that right. It's going to be hard to come back from. And I that's I feel like an alarm. Like the, like that's the lesson that I took from the book. Like irrespective yep. of of Clinton per se, yep. or the Kellyanne Conway's past, or. David Bossy or any of these other characters is that the like intellectual ethic that they embody is now becoming normal in Republican politics. And like turning that off is just going to be very difficult. Yeah, I don't see any indication that there's any any real desire to turn that off. I mean, I, I feel like like they, they're sort of like Thelma and Louise. They, like, they've shot off the cliff and <laughs> God knows, you know, where we're, where we're going next. But I don't see a lot of people bucking to turn around. I mean, you have this crazy, so, you know, Trump might be on the verge of firing Jeff Sessions and installing God knows who and route to firing Bob Mueller. And you don't see any Republican elected officials or at least not any prominent ones stepping up and dragging their feet and saying, nope, that's enough. We've got to kind of pull things back to some semblance uh, of an earlier political norm. It just isn't there. There's no there's nobody pulling on the other end of the rope. Does this your understanding of Bannon and and separately but relatedly of Trump? Like, I feel like there are a few hints throughout the book. You don't talk about, uh, you know, the the Russian subversion efforts directly. But I feel like you allude in some sense to this idea that between the honey badger ethic, the Mercer sort of propaganda uh, war, like psychological warfare mentality about politics, et cetera, that these would be the kind of people who, if presented with an opportunity to team up with, with the Russian government to help them win the election, that they wouldn't think of that as somehow outside the bounds of what was decent or ethical, and that those considerations wouldn't really come to play. Does you, having written this book, does it affect your sense of this story? I don't know. Actually, I I think Bannon is maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I think Bannon is a smart enough guy. You don't get this from kind of the crazy man Darth Vader portrayal, which he he obviously encourages. But I think he's smart and. He, smart enough that he would have been alert to the dangers of uh, taking this stuff directly from a hacker, having a Russian meeting. I mean, Don Jr. has got an IQ of like four. Um, <laughs> Steve Bannon, for all his his um, plentiful flaws, is a very, very smart guy. I'm not sure that he would have done that, not out of any uh, ethical concern, but just because I feel like he would have been able to see a couple of chess moves ahead about how this could backfire. But, but that, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I mean, I'm wrong. I, mean uh, I, 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 I see that. And then at the same time, I see that he was determined to use Trump as a vessel for for this ideology he has. Mm-hmm. And tr- like not being able to see that Trump himself would produce investigative problems, probably had some criminal liability in his past. Like if, if he couldn't see that, then maybe he just wasn't. Well, I, I, I think he came at Trump differently. I mean, I think I think Bannon recognizes that you know, Trump was his only vehicle to the White House. No other, n- none of the other 16 Republican candidates would have had a Steve Bannon anywhere near them. I mean, uh, he, he, he's a flawed, extreme, controversial guy. Uh, Republicans hated him because of his role in Breitbart News. 
Trump really didn't care. So I think he's stuck with Trump for better or, or worse. And despite all the kind of lavish public stuff about how loyal he is and this and that, I know it drives him nuts when Trump does these sorts of things, and just as it drives all Trump's other advisors nuts, that the guy is impulsive and he can't help himself. And I think Bannon is willing to overlook it and endure any indignity. But uh, my, my sense of things is that if 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 Democrats can beat Trump in 2020, that maybe that there is a, a way to kind of reel this kind of intellectual current back in. Um, but that if if Trump were to win re-election, that, that it you know what, however democratic institutions hold up to to the stuff he's doing, the the way we communicate about politics and and like what what passes is like the right way to argue and so on is is probably irreparably. You can't put that genie yeah. back in the bottle. That's sad. Um, I did bring a copy of the book though. So before we um, before we wrap this conversation, would you sign it for me? Oh, of course. <laughs> And that means that uh, primary concerns listeners, um, we uh, can begin a bidding war for an autographed copy of Devil's Bargain by Josh Green. Just kidding. I'm keeping this one. Can I read the inscription? Yeah, go for it. All right. Let's see. To Brian, a total honey badger. There you go. Josh Green, thanks for joining me. It was great being here. This episode of Primary Concerns was produced by Mickey Capper. You can find us on Twitter at Prime underscore Concerns, on NewRepublic.com, and anywhere you download your podcasts. I'm Brian Boitler. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>